Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 66. The portion of the Word of God that we'll be looking at this evening is the 66th Psalm. To the chief musician, a song or psalm. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. The end of the, or the beginning of the fourth century was a time of great chaos and upheaval. Diocletian lay sick and dying of a grievous sickness. His tetrarchy that he had established was now embroiled in the midst of civil war, one faction vying for authority over the other. Of these men was Constantius, Maximini, Maxentius, and Galerius. Galerius himself passing away already. Maximinus being forced to commit suicide, leaving a vacuum so that Constantius in his old age was unable to secure much power, him being in charge of the West. Maxentius took the opportunity to overtake all of Italy and Africa. But Constantius had a son named Constantine. And he had no sooner returned home from the wars that he had been waging abroad than to return home to Rome, faced with the civil war embroiled with Maxentius. Diocletian himself died in 305 and Constantine's father the year after. And for the next six years, civil war broke out between Constantine and Maxentius. And it was not until 312 that Maxentius was broken at that well-known Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where we are told that Constantine, in the middle of the night, received a vision of a chi and a rho. Now, children, these are two Greek letters. The chi looks like an X, and the rho looks like a P, and the two of them overlapping one another. And it is told to us that... Though these are Greek letters, the beginning of the title Christ that Jesus has to himself, he's been told in Latin, in this sign, conquer. Now, whether or not that actually happened is part of much debate. And Eusebius, the so-called father of church history himself, uh, thinks that this is rather dubious and questions the veracity from Constantine's own mouth. But regardless... Constantine used this symbol, this sign, to subjugate and conquer the land, so that for the first time ever, the Roman Empire saw itself conquered under the name of Christ physically and literally. It had already been conquered by Christ in his gospel, but now Constantine comes forth with the sign of the chi and the roe, on the standard of Rome, with all the soldiers bearing it on their shields, as they would come to a people to conquer them 
conquering with that sign. We do not have a warfare that is by flesh and blood, beloved, but a spiritual warfare. And in Psalm 66, we see that conquering King Christ, who conquers us by the sign of his gospel. This last section in the, this book of the Psalter are riddled with kingly psalms. And this is one of those kingly psalms. And we see its culmination in Psalm 72, the psalm that David writes on behalf of Solomon. But in the midst of this, from going to Psalm 51 to 72, in the middle of these Davidic psalms, you have this twin pair of what's called orphan psalms, psalms without an author. It was questioned. Did David write this? Did Asaph write this? Did another prophet write this? Perhaps even Hezekiah, as you'll see maybe an option later on. Who wrote this psalm? We do not know, other than the Holy Spirit. But this is an orphan psalm given to us, and we see that three parties are conquered by the sign of Christ, by his gospel, calling them to worship him in spirit and in truth. The psalm itself is set up in this fashion, going from the outward, the general, the broad, narrowing down to one particular person. And so it is that we will also divide up the message this way as well. There's that word selah that occurs three times, verse 4, 7, and 15, which you know means pause and meditate. It's a marker to stop and think about what has been said. But there's also two other things that are unique to this psalm. The word come appears in verse 5 on the transition between the first and second portion, and in verse 16 in the middle of the third portion. You'll see why this is crucial. I'm only bringing it up at the beginning so you can have it in the front of your mind as we get to it. The way that the psalm is laid out is very beautiful. It first speaks of the world conquered by Christ in verses 1 to 4. Second, the church conquered by Christ in verses 5 through 12. And then lastly, the individual Christian conquered by Christ in verses 13 to the end, which is verse 20. So you see how it goes from the general with the world, particular with the visible church, and then finally with that individual Christian that has their faith and trust in Christ and him alone. And so we'll consider these three points with the Lord's help this evening. First, the world conquered by Christ. This conquering begins with a proclamation to the world. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. What a proclamation to behold. Every creature must worship God. Out of principle of the fact, merely because God is the creator. We know quite clearly, the scripture teaches this. The whole creation groans and speaks of the glory of God, his eternal power and glory. And all of creation calls for man to worship him, and yet so few do. And this psalm is unique in that it's an evangelistic psalm. It begins by calling the world to worship God. Isn't that amazing? Here is the God of glory who could leave the world 
to die and burn in hell. And yet in his mercy and his love sends out his free offer of his gospel that the whole world would once again bring forth the praise that is worthy of him. And so the conquering of Christ begins with a proclamation. This is not an odd thing. We see this in scripture. Terms of peace are given to those that do not deserve peace. Terms of peace are given to the enemies of Christ. So it was when Israel went into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, to conquer it. We're told in the middle of the book of Joshua that not one nation sought peace with Israel, except for Rahab the harlot and the others that sought in subtlety to join themselves to Israel. No one sought out terms of peace. And even in the law of God, there was that stipulation. When you come to a city, offer terms of peace outside of the land of Canaan. God brings terms of peace. You think to Matthew chapter 10, when Christ sends his disciples into the nation of Israel to preach the gospel. What does he speak of? Terms of peace. That you bring the gospel, you bring it to the city, is a term of peace. And if they reject it, then that peace returns to you. You shake out your coat, the dust from your shoes, and you walk away, and utter destruction will come upon them. He says it will be more tolerable in the last day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city that heard that good news. Those terms of peace. And so the conquering of Christ begins with a proclamation. This is a beautiful thing. Christ in his conquering doesn't simply come and destroy there are many kings that could, and Christ has every right to do so. But we see his mercy here, that it begins with a proclamation. He sends out ambassadors of the gospel, saying, come worship the king. And yet how few answer that call. It's not simply a proclamation in the conquering. There's also a particular articulation that is given as well. Look at verse 3. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. The ambassadors go out to the world and say, these are the words that you speak. This is how you reverence the king of glory. This is how you enter into his presence. This is a wonderful thing, is it not, beloved? That the Lord himself declares to us how we are to praise God and what we are to say. You understand, this is the gospel. When Pastor McCurley or another minister goes out in open air preaches and gives the gospel, there's particular things that need to be known. In repentance, there's a particular articulation of the gospel. One cannot come to Christ and say, uh, How pathetic you are, O God, and your works are kind of so so. No one can come with that kind of attitude and see salvation. Instead, what must we from the heart all say? Say unto God, How terrible are thou, thy works. Now, that word terrible, children, means fearful. We, we have that word terrible in our English language, and it seems to mean a different thing to us. But terrible here is referring to something that's fearful. His works are fearful, and yes, they should be. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
There's a proper reverential fear that ought to be had upon every person on this planet for God and his works. The Lord comes and says, when I come to you and I give you terms of peace, you need to say, how fearful are your works, O Lord. How fearful it is to consider that you offer salvation to me, that your son, that you, Christ, drank the cup of the Lord's wrath to its dregs so that I would not have to. What a fearful thing. And the Lord calls upon them. There's a prophetic utterance as well. This isn't just for the here and now. It's not just for the past. The psalmist isn't speaking just of what was in the Old Testament history of the church of Israel. But a prophetic utterance. See in verse 4. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name, Selah. Pause and meditate. Consider the weightiness of what was just said. Is the psalmist speaking hyperbolically? All the world shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. He's speaking metaphorically, not really to thy name, but they'll make up their own songs to sing. Beloved, hear this. The prophetic utterance that is given. I, I, I note this quite often. We see this in Isaiah 66. How the Gentiles will come and sing the praise of the Lord. How they will see the glory of God and come and worship him. And how are we to worship him? We're to worship him as he commanded. And part of that is with the songs of Zion that we have in the scripture. One day, beloved, one day, the whole world will be singing this altar and no other book. See the ramification of this. You have Israel that is a microcosm, a small part of the world, the church. And even of Israel, you have the Levites and a section of the Levites carved out to sing the Lord's praise. And to see that day when the entire world is singing the Lord's praise from the same songbook inspired by the Holy Spirit. The psalmist here saw that, understood the ramification of the psalms that were being written and sung by the church of that age, understood how the gospel would not remain simply with the church of Israel, but that one day the Gentiles would be brought in, or rather, as Christ notes, that the country, the nation, would be given to another one that would bring fruit worthy of him. So the Lord comes and he conquers the world by his gospel. This is a beautiful thing, beloved. This is what scripture speaks of. Look to Isaiah 66. We see this very thing. I will set a sign among them 
and I will send those that escape unto them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pool and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations. Beloved, this is the beauty of it. We are not Israelites. We fulfill prophecy by the very nature of sitting here and worshiping God. We who are not Jews by, by birth and by descent, this should, this should rouse you to praise the Lord all the more, to know that the very word of God is being fulfilled every day that another person is converted to Christ. The word of God is being fulfilled His kingdom is going forth. He's conquering the world more and more, extending the border out further and further till it has no end. What beauty that is. So it is that we're told in the New Testament as well, not just the old, that at the name of Jesus, in Philippians 2.10, every knee shall bow of things heaven and things of the earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, the world will be conquered by Christ, by the sign of his gospel. The church also needs to be conquered by Christ. Let's see in verse 5. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible. Again, children, he is fearful in his doings toward the children of men. As the church is conquered by Christ, we see an invitation to witness. You children know from a young age that Christ has three offices and that in his office of king, he executes that office. In subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his enemies, his and our enemies. So we come to the subduing. The church itself has to be subdued to Christ, not just the world, the church as well. Christ goes and conquers it, and brings forth an invitation to witness his terrible works. And you see how this is a perfect transition. The call comes out, come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doings. You have that phrase, children of men. It can be translated as sons of Adam. If you look back to the 1650 Psalter where we sung, it says sons of men. So those words can be interchanged. Instead of children of men, sons of Adam. And there's reason for that, as the psalmist draws out. Ye sons of men, come and see the works of God. From the world to the church, come and see the works of God. An invitation to witness the great power of God. Have you considered that? Every day that you wake up, every day that the Lord gives you a new day of breath, is a day to witness his great works. Is a day to call our neighbors to witness the works of Christ. 
is a day that we can speak to our children concerning the works of Christ. And what are they? They are fearful in his doing. What can we do without there being an invitation to do so? This come and see language is not used very frequently in Scripture. It's used a few times in Isaiah. It's used in John quite a bit in his writings. You remember the beginning of the, epistle, the Gospel of John. Twice they say, come and see. We have found the one that is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what's the response? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You have the beasts in Revelation chapter 6. And what do they say? Christ breaks the seal. Come and see. Four times the beasts say, come and see. Here the psalmist says, come and see. Isaiah says that the Gentiles will come and see. And what are they coming to see? They're coming to see the greatness of the Lord. They're coming to a center place. They're coming to the gospel. They're seeing his work at Calvary. Now, for a time, the world tried to do that. They tried to have a center place, not for Christ, but to stand in opposition to him. That we see in the Tower of Babel. And from that point forward, the Lord dispersed the people of the sons of Noah throughout the entire world. And calling from Eber to Abram to eventually the 12 patriarchs, we have Israel. And in the Old Testament, it was largely a come and see type of gospel message. Here's where the true religion is. Here's where the true worship is. Here's where the one true God is. Come and see. And everywhere that the church went, come and see. As they sojourn in Canaan, come and see. As they're in Egypt, come and see. And in the incident recorded for us, come and see. This is the second way that the Lord conquers his church by an incident to preserve. He preserves his people. How often do we take for granted the preservation of the Lord? If he was to destroy the church, there would be nothing left. There'd be nothing to conquer. It would be all gone and be obliterated. And yet, he brings incidents to preserve his church. Look at what the psalmist says. What are we to come and see? What incident in particular? He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. Where did we rejoice in him? There did we rejoice in him. He ruled by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. This is something that we should bring out, especially with the gospel message going forth. As it goes out to the world, and you in the church should understand this, that you are being preserved by God. You have particular privileges and blessings that the world does not have. And so it is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can tell the believing spouse not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. Why? Because they are holy and the children are holy. 
There are particular blessings, privileges, protections granted to the church that the world does not have. So that as we saw with the ten plagues in Egypt, he can spare the entire church through water turning to blood, flies, frogs, lice. You go through the whole list. Hail coming down, destroying the cattle and the crops. Boils. Blackness. Think of the darkness. Blackness all over southern Egypt, the northern part of the Nile. All over that portion of Egypt, except for one spot, the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, where the church was. They had light. Everyone else, pitch black darkness. And then the slaying of the firstborn. God redeems his son Israel. He takes for himself every firstborn male that is redeemed with a sacrifice. The fathers take that Passover lamb and sprinkle the blood on the lentil on the doorposts. The Lord sees it and passes over. The Egyptians, not so much. So that there's a crying in Egypt at midnight as such was never heard again. All the firstborn destroyed. But that's not the focus of the psalmist. Here he focuses on the parting of the Red Sea. You see the greatness of God, how he preserves his church. He will overturn the world to preserve the church. He took Noah and his family, the remnant of the church at the time, and overthrew the dry ground and made the entire thing wet. Flooded it completely. And he takes the children of Israel here to the wet Red Sea and parts it and gives them dry land to walk upon. Overturning the laws of nature. Destroying the world. Why? To preserve his people. And this is something that you can note to the unbeliever in your witnessing and your evangelism. Try as you might to destroy the church. The true church will still remain. The false churches that go their way, that worship another god, we can't speak for them. Liberals that go and go after their false gods, whatever it may be. The false church of Israel in the Old Testament destroyed, never to be heard from again. But the church of the living God that worships him aright, that seeks his name, is preserved. The Lord preserves his visible church. This is a great blessing that we see. Psalm 81, verses 14 to 16, speak of this preservation. The treading down upon the adder and not suffering. Being able to fight against the lion and not face harm. And it is given particularly to gospel ministers and God preserving them in Mark in his true ending. Chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Our Lord himself noting how he preserves his gospel ministers. And in the midst of all of this incident to preserve, this becomes an incentive to persevere. The Lord conquers his church, thirdly, by incentives to persevere. And this is where things get difficult. This is where the rub happens and where many depart from the faith. This is where the ones that receive the gospel with joy have the thorns and briars coming up, and it is choked out 
for the cares of this world or because of persecution. Note what the psalmist says. Incentives to persevere. He has already said that the Lord holds our soul in our life. He suffers not our feet to be moved. Isn't that a blessed thing to know, beloved? Have you ever played a game like King of the Mountain or some other wrestling type game where you have to plant your feet and make sure they're solid, otherwise you're going to get knocked off and lose? And the Lord says, I take you and I plant your feet so that you will not be moved. And with that understanding of what the Lord did all throughout with Egypt, taking them through the Red Sea, planting their feet, making them not moved, crashing the Red Sea upon the Egyptians, making their feet moved all over the place where they would not desire. He comes with this word, which to some is going to be a harsh word, but it's a true word. The Lord is faithful. He says this in verse 10 to 12. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou brought us into the net. Thou laidest affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But thou brought us unto, out into a wealthy place. This is where people depart often. When things become troublesome. And this is one of the things that we often note. When someone takes hold of Christ and receives him as their savior, things do not get easier. Things get harder. Because once before, you were a happy, hapless, unknowledgeable foot soldier for Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And when the Lord takes you by his mercy and regenerates you and gives you the gift of faith and takes you from that kingdom and translates you to the kingdom of light, you're now at full war. You were born again into warfare. You are given the armor of God. And it is a tough, grueling fight. That is why the church on earth is called the church militant. We are militant until we give our last breath. We are in spiritual warfare. And some of it affects our body as well. Because that's all the world can think of. How can we assault them? Well, we can't touch their soul. We'll touch their body instead. And for some, the affliction of the body is enough to say, that's enough, Christ, I'm out. Forgetting what he on the cross had afflicted upon his own body. Just physically. Not even considering how grievous his soul was torn. In Gethsemane at the thought of drinking the cup of his father's wrath, at the thought that for a time he would lose fellowship and communion and the joy of his father, tasting hell for his people for a time. But no, for some, the physical destruction, the physical harm is enough to say, enough, I've had it, I'm done. That's important to note that. 
The psalmist isn't lying. He's not leaving things out to try and trick someone. The young convert, don't tell them that it's going to get harder. Make them think it's going to get easier. No. The psalmist is realistic because he knows the word of God. He knows how the Lord has already vouchsafed to make our feet not to be moved. So if the Lord is able to take us through the Red Sea, it is because he is with us. And if the Lord gives us a harsh providence and puts our feet in a net and lays weight upon us so that our loins buckle, he is still with us. And these are incentives to persevere. This is how he conquers his church. He subdues us to himself. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He takes the weight and burden of sin off of your back. The guilt that you had in Adam. And he places upon you a lighter yoke. And at times you think, this is hard, this is difficult. Yes, it's spiritual training, it's spiritual exercise. You know why it's so difficult? Because X number of years before you were alive, physically, you were dead spiritually. And you're using your spiritual muscles for the first time ever. You had atrophied spiritual muscles. And now it's time to go and work them out. There's a joke among... Um, the guys that do bodybuilding, and it, it has to do with this. So uh, it's easy to work the arms. The legs are very difficult, and many guys skip what's called leg day. And so you'll see guys that are very buff on the top, but very skinny legs. Look at what the psalmist says here. You have, thou hast laid affliction upon our loins. That's the legs. That's the Lord putting them through strenuous activity of what's called leg day. It's very difficult. If you've done it before, you've done that heavy exercising before, you get to points where you're throwing up because of how strenuous it is. It's very difficult. And so the Lord says here, he's, the psalmist says here that the Lord has laid these burdens on us. He's giving us the most difficult of circumstances and burdens to put on it. But in the midst of that affliction, do you know what the Lord says? In the midst of laying all those burdens on his people, we have this testimony in the word of God. From the Apostle Paul himself, who bore such burdens. He says, For this thing, this thorn in the flesh, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then here's the response of the Apostle Paul. The same as the psalmist. The incentive to persevere. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. that The power of Christ may rest upon me. So the Lord comes, brings a hard providence, saddles the church down with hard things, hard times, times like we see today. That's just the beginning, the calm before the storm, before things really tick up. Think of 
the early church dealing with Diocletian and the great persecutions that were happening. We've not seen that in America yet. And yet they went through that hard providence, and then what happened after that? There was a cessation. There's a cessation that happened afterwards. And so it is with this, that the Lord brings a hard providence. He proves us. He tests us. What do we read in Ezekiel 22? That the church had become so decrepit. Nebuchadnezzar, if you look back at Jeremiah and what's going on in Chronicles, you had the first uh, captivity where he takes out the choicest of the people. That includes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Ezekiel's gone. He takes the choicest of the people and leaves behind eventually just the riffraff. And God looks at the church left behind in Israel and says, you're all dross. Nebuchadnezzar was right to leave you behind, and I'm about to put you into the furnace. And so it is that the Lord, to conquer his church, will often put her in the furnace. And it's necessary it's necessary, beloved, the dross that is upon us, the sins of our soul, the things that may be burned away. He takes us, if you look at iron ore, or as the psalmist says, and as Isaiah says, silver, silver in the rough, still with the other parts of rocks upon it. It has to be crushed and broken and then thrown into the kiln and heated up and melted. And if you're silver, that's not a fun process. And of a truth, the people of God go through that process. And those that are not of Christ, the wood, hay, and stubble burns up and is no more. But those that are of Christ's come forth as even purer than before. But that doesn't mean that you won't go back in the furnace again. There's still more dross. There's still greater levels of purity. You ladies know this. You look at the engagement ring, the wedding ring that you have on your finger. How many carats did it have? What's the purity content of the gold or the platinum or the silver? You can get different varieties of rings based on the quality of the precious metal. How long has it been tried in the fire? How much of the dross has been removed? An interesting image for us in uh, the New Jerusalem, is that the gold is see-through. That's how much of the dross has been removed, completely and utterly. What gives gold its beautiful color is the dross that remains in it, the luster found in it. The Lord sends us into the fire. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. A picture of uh, a bunch of horsemen trampling over the people. You think of the dragoons riding over the covenanters. That same picture. A gruesome, grueling picture. Not a pretty sight. Just horses just trampling men to death that are serving Christ. The psalmist speaks in similar fashion here. Nebuchadnezzar and his host doing the same thing. The Assyrians doing the same thing, not caring about person, whether it's male or female, young maiden, old man, woman with child, doesn't matter. Trample upon them. The Lord brings this harsh providence. He says, we went through fire and through water, but thou brought us out into a wealthy place. 
The Lord still brings his people into a wealthy place because that is where the Lord is. He's with them all the way. When the church went through the wilderness, Christ was with them in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud, in the rock. He was with them. He was there. He walked with them. There was that promise to them. And the psalmist, looking back at all that the church of the Old Testament went through, says, whether it's through fire or through water that that you brought us through, you brought us to a wealthy place. And if the psalmist here is David or is Hezekiah, you can think of how many difficult times of water and fire they went through to see a good place. The Lord will do that for us as well. We think of the testimony that's given to us of Daniel and his friends. Isaiah, in his 43rd chapter, says this as a blessing to his church. He says, But now saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. And so it is, if we flip to Daniel, chapter 3. See, Daniel and his three friends refusing to bow to the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar telling them, if you do not bow, you're going into the fiery furnace. And what is the response to these young men? Isaiah, as a book, has already been written. Psalm 66 has already been written. And them knowing the promises of the Lord, knowing his gospel, knowing it's either you stand with Satan or you stand with Christ, They say to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world of the time, the head of the power of all people, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image, which thou hast set up. That beautiful promise in Isaiah 43. They knew it. And they took hold of it. The psalm that they sung in their youth about walking through the fire and the water and bringing us out to a wealthy place. What wealthy place would there be? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what are you talking about? You get burned up, you can't go back to Israel. Oh, that's right. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A far wealthier place than you could ever find on this earth. And so it is. Hebrews 11 recounts, in short, the faith of such men and women who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. 
Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. The others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided something better for us. They without us may not be made perfect. What a blessing that is. Quenching the fire, a reference back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Stopping the mouths of lions, a reference to Daniel. Escaping the edge of the sword, a reference to Esther and the plot that Haman had against the Jews. And yet, some did not have such deliverance. And whether they are delivered in this life by surviving, given a few more years to exist, or they're delivered by their body and soul separating, it matters not because Christ is with us. You see, this is how Christ conquers his church. He burns out the dross. He ensures that what remains is precious and a treasure to him. And so it Psalmist ends his portion with the individual Christian himself, who under inspiration knew that he was regenerated, knew that he was a believer. The individual Christian conquered by Christ. Verses 13 to the end. It says, I will go into the, <coughs> excuse me, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings and the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Selah. This is one reason why some say this orphan psalm could have been written by Hezekiah. And of a truth, we see that in Isaiah. At the end of Isaiah, when Hezekiah is speaking of the deliverance that he has. He says, we will sing my psalms all the days of my life. This could be one of those psalms. Either he's referring to the psalms that God has already given and owning them as his own, or he's speaking of those and ones that he wrote by prophecy under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, or both. In any case, he was not like his fathers of old that offered incense when they would not to that brought in false worship. Hezekiah had that mark upon him, that he sought out the true worship of God. And you see how, in this psalm, how much Isaiah is referenced. And Isaiah was the prophet during the time of Hezekiah. There's, there's a great deal of parallels. I'm not saying that Hezekiah was the one that wrote the psalm. I'm just noting that there's a great deal of wealth. There's, there's a, a great deal of parallels that are given, a lot of allusions being drawn in. So that either the psalmist before Isaiah is looking forward to these things, and Isaiah is writing Psalm 66, writing his literature, knowing Psalm 66. Or Isaiah is written, and Hezekiah writes Psalm 66 after being healed from Sennacherib and his sickness. Whichever it is, we know that the Lord is with his people. 
the individual is conquered. We see that it first begins with vows required. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. This is what Hezekiah said. I will go and what is a sign that I will go into the house of God? The dial, the sundial moves back several spaces. So it is with us that when we are under a hard providence, we will say when we come out of it, I will go into the house of God and offer sacrifices. The sacrifice of praise shall be on our lips. Now, how many of you going up to conference went through that wicked storm on Monday? We went through it. How many of you offered a sacrifice of praise to the Lord having exited it? We did. Consider that fire and water, lightning, torrential rains. It's not metaphorical, it was literal. And yet the Lord brought us through, and here we are today. A beautiful providence. And what is it that we do in response? The, the sign of a conquered Christian is to offer the sacrifice of praise from a true heart. Vows required. He speaks of these things. That which was required in the Old Testament ceremonial cultists that we are not under. And yet we have things that we are required to bring. There's still lawful oaths and vows. There's still the sacrifice of praise of the lips that we are to bring before the Lord. And in the midst of him saying, I'm going to do this, I will do this. But you notice how he has progressed through the psalm. First he says to the 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 world, you, look at this, see this. Then he comes to the church and says, we. Now he comes to himself and he says, I, I will do this. And then he stops and says, Selah. He pauses about what he said. He thinks about it. He meditates on it. He moves on to the victories recounted. And here we see that uh, phrase once again, come, come and hear. All ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. He recounts the victories that Christ has wrought upon him. How he has conquered, he has subdued him. And think of that with whatever Old Testament person it is that wrote this. Or many of the times that we see in the Old Testament history. How the Lord will take a man or woman of God and put them through the furnace. Think of Joseph who was with his brothers. And his brothers sell him into slavery. He doesn't know yet. But the Lord has already in his providence decreed that this will happen to preserve the church. And Joseph goes through a very difficult providence. First with Potiphar, then the wife, and then thrown into the prison. Doing so to humble Joseph, to prepare him for the day that he does see his brothers again. So that he would not lash out with them in anger. So that he would praise the Lord and say, when he sees his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So he would not sin foolishly with his lips later on like Job did. Job, who is an example of perseverance in the midst of affliction to us. How later in the book... The beginning, he doesn't sin with his lips, and then he starts to get full of himself, demanding an audience with God, demanding to know, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why is this happening? And then the Lord comes and tells him to equip himself like a man and answer him. 
And all the time that Job was saying, I'm going to speak worlds to the Lord about what's going on, he says, I cover my mouth and repent in dust and ashes. The psalmist here recounts the victories of Christ subduing him. Christ goes out and conquers all of his and our enemies. What are our greatest enemies? Our own sin, our own flesh, death. Death is conquered in Christ. But how much of our sin needs to be conquered by Christ? Have you considered that? This is not just a physical providence that the psalmist is speaking of, but also spiritual victories. Come and hear all ye that fear God. I will declare what he hath done for my body. No. I will declare what he hath done for my soul. My soul. Is that not beautiful, beloved? Lord comes and says, this is what I'm going to do for your good and my glory. I am going to sanctify you. I am going to cause you to become made more and more like the image of my son. So that you look less and less like the world. I'm going to make you so that you are more and more alive unto grace and goodness and truth. And in doing so, you are more dead to sin. More dead to the things of this world. More dead to the things that do not profit. He cried and extolled him with his tongue. Most know that Psalm 66 verse 16 is the forefront verse that John Bunyan put at the beginning of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. 1666, he writes, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, then 1678, Pilgrim's Progress, and then 1682, Holy War. You see how Emmanuel takes man's soul. Psalm 66 is a wonderful picture of that same thing. Bunyan's writing by allegory, and here you see how Christ comes and conquers this man's soul for himself, for his glory. This individual Christian, whether it's a, uh, and the same for you too, whether you're male or female, does not matter. Christ comes seeking to conquer for his glory and our good. And we see lastly, in the conquering of this individual, a vindicated redeemer, a vindicated redeemer. Note what the psalmist says. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me and hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. What is he speaking here of? He says this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, that's if I cherish sin in my heart, if I keep sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The psalmist, in essence, is saying this. Sin delighted in severs one from the communion of the Savior. Sin delighted in severs one from communion with the Savior. And this is why we have a whole week of preparatory services before communion. It's not that we wait until the prep services in order to make sure that we are in right with the Lord. No. But especially during that time for an extra burning of the furnace, a burning way of the dross, 
and ensuring that when we come to the table, we are not regarding iniquity in our heart. That if we are up to that point, that we ask the Lord's repentance and maybe abstain from the table. So it is, the psalmist here notes, if I regard iniquity, he will not hear me. Of a truth, it is true. How many wicked people out there think that the Lord is blessing them because of their success? He's not. He's letting them get as much of this thing on that world so that on the last day it burns up with them. It's just fuel for the fire. Fuel for the fire for the last day. And it is a scary thing, beloved, to be a Christian, to love sin in your heart, whether it's a pet sin or a season of sin, whatever it is, and to question yourself, why is the Lord not answering my prayer? I got this thing over here that I really, really, really love, but I, I want the Lord to succeed. I want him to do this. Why is he not answering my prayer? It's this over here. It's your love for this sin over here, this cherished iniquity that is breaking communion with Christ, that is severing you from your Savior so that he might hear you. What is it that we read by the prophets? If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will send from heaven and heal their land. Repentance is necessary. And so it is that the psalmist notes that in the midst of him asking the Lord for aid, he did not do it with sin in his heart. So if it's Hezekiah, note from Hezekiah, I only use this by way of illustration, not to beat a dead horse for Hezekiah. But Hezekiah notes in his prayer, Lord, remember the good that I did for you. He doesn't say on his deathbed, oh, I know I had years of living for myself and for sin, but Lord, give me a few years to get my life right. That's not what he says. He notes the years of service, the, the fact that he did not harbor sin in his heart and brings that to the Lord. And so it is, by example, we too do the same thing. That when we are in need and we are crushed, we best Get rid of our sin first before asking the Lord for his aid. First ask his aid to conquer sin in our soul before asking for his aid elsewhere. Otherwise, he will not hear us. This is the way of the Lord. He exalts the humble. And so if you're not willing to get low, if you're not willing to get on your knees and repent before the Lord, He's not going to exalt you. He's not going to bring you out of the pit for your own good. He'll do it for his glory if he does. But no, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with his glory. Be very careful. The Redeemer is vindicated. Be sure your sin will find you out. What you sow, you will reap. And the psalmist here notes, I did not regard iniquity in my heart. And for that very reason, verily God hath heard me and hath attended his voice of my prayer. He closes and says, Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Our children, when we see that word blessed in reference to God, we're not seeing it in the sense of the greater blessing, the lesser. We are lesser than God. We don't bless God in that sense. Instead, what it's talking about is reverence, praise given to God. Praise be to God, you could read instead. Praise to God 
which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. God is good to his people. So we come to the conclusion, beloved. And the question is this. Have you been conquered by Christ? By the sign of his gospel? By the terms of peace given to you? To turn from your sin and to turn unto him? Or are you still merely fighting and playing in the kingdom of darkness? Of a truth, you will be conquered by Christ. If not in this life, then on the last day. When you draw your dying breath, you'll go right to hell, like the rich man. And on the last day, you'll stand before Christ, and you will bow the knee to him and confirm with what our margin notes, yield feigned obedience that he is the Christ and that he has conquered you. But there's no good coming for you because of that conquering. And so this evening, you see how Christ will conquer the world, Christ will conquer his church, and Christ conquers the individual Christian. Have you submitted to Christ? Have you accepted his terms of peace? Or are you still at war with him? Dear unconverted friend, please take hold of Christ. He wins. You will not be able to escape him. There will not be any plan in the hereafter that you will be able to somehow devise. And whatever pains you are suffering in this life now will be multiplied in numbers that I cannot even lisp because it is the full wrath of God upon you. You take hold of Christ and the gospel freely offered. You can remain in your sin and die in those trespasses and suffer the consequences of God's wrath forever. Either way, you will be conquered by Christ. Best to be conquered by him in this life and submit and kiss the Son. Let's stand and look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, what a word you have given to us. And your office of king going out and conquering all things, putting all things under your feet. We see you high and lifted up at the right hand of the Father. And all things are under you, yet not all things. And so it is we pray that you might, of those that are here that do not know you, Conquer them for your sake and your glory and their good. That as we speak to our neighbors, we might warn them of the wrath to come. To submit to you and the claims of the gospel. We pray this in your son's beloved name, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.